So you may have noticed that in different parts of the world and here in America, even here in our local neighborhoods and in our families, that Christianity is not shining everywhere. In some places around the world and even in some of our homes, the once bright light of Christ grows dim. Now, one of the places where this is happening very obviously is in our colleges and in our universities. Places like Harvard and Yale, Dartmouth, uh, Princeton, Rutgers, all started out as these institutions that had this high value of Scripture and Christian living and faith in Jesus Christ. Over the years, though, each one of these schools has taken a turn and has rejected the truths of Christianity. Now, uh, take uh, Harvard, for example. In 1692, we have a, uh, a picture of what their original seal and motto looked like. It, it went like this. In Latin, it says this, Veritas Christo Ecclesia. In English, that means truth for Christ and the church. Truth for Christ and the church. This is Harvard. And in recent times, though, over the years, this motto and seal have changed. And now it simply says this. It says veritas, truth. That's it. Now, uh, Harvard was, a, was once the center of Christian learning in the world. Or originally, it was founded by a group of Puritans who solidly believed that knowledge and wisdom and understanding come from the word of God. And the purpose of starting this school was actually to establish a place where people could be trained in order to go into the ministry to be pastors and teachers. And, and then they were deployed into local ministry. Part of Harvard's rules and precepts in 1646 stated this. The main end of a student's life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, the only foundation of all solid knowledge and learning. But this is no longer the case. Now, what is believed and what is taught and what is practiced at Harvard is that truth can be found apart from God. In fact, that man is the ultimate authority over God. About a year ago, a Christian group on Harvard's campus was put on probation for being too Christian, for living out the truths of the Bible. In fact, they were told, your values are not the same as the values of this university. And they were told to sever their connections with the local Christian union group. The once bright light of Christ is growing dim. Now, here in America, in general, there is this concern because there are various organizations that poll people on how they feel about religion and how they practice religion. One of these very respected groups is an organization called the Pew Research Group. Now, they have a broad definition of what it means to be a Christian, and it includes Baptists and Presbyterians and Episcopals and Lutheran and Pentecostal and even Catholic. But in 2007, they found that 78% of people call themselves Christians in some form. But, but in 2014, the most recent poll found that 70% of people call themselves Christians. Now, 
numbers may not mean a whole lot to you, but this is a really big sociological shift. I mean, hardly anything from a cultural standpoint changes that dramatically in seven years. Those who are unaffiliated, those who have no religion, they have gone from 16% in 2007 to 23% in 2014. And that was five years ago, so I would bet that those numbers have changed even since then. A very dramatic change in just seven years. Imagine having a child right now who is 10 years old, a child that loves the Lord, a child that knows their Bible, who prays to God, and think about that, what kind of a world they will be living in seven years from now if, the, if things keep changing and going in this direction. The once bright light of Christ is growing dim in certain places. On top of all of this data, there are the real-life experiences of people. remember years ago talking to one of my neighbors and inviting him to church, and he kind of got defensive, and he started asking me all of these questions about life and religion, and, and, and I tried to answer them as best I could. But eventually, what I found out was that this guy, his dad was a Christian, but didn't really live like a Christian. And so he was trying to keep his distance from Christianity. He didn't really want anything to do with the church because of how he had grown up. The once bright light of Christ had grown dim for him. And yet the scriptures expect the Christian community to shine. And we're going to see just that in our text uh, this morning. And so I want to invite you to grab a Bible Uh, Grab your Bible, grab one in the pew rack in front of you, open your Bible app, but join me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles, I just want to point out that this passage that we're going to be looking at today, it centers around, it focuses on this idea of shining the light of Christ in the world. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 15, we're told, shine as lights in the world. This idea of shining is a pretty strong biblical theme that begins all the way back in the Old Testament. If you go to the the book of Isaiah, there are many references like Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6 to shining the light. And it says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribe of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Light shining to the world, bringing salvation. Of course, Jesus picks this up beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he's speaking to his disciples and beginning in verse 14, he says this, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The expectation throughout the scriptures 
is that the Christian community would shine. And what we're talking about today is how. I mean, how do we as believers shine in this world that is so full of darkness? Well, the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, about what it means to shine. But before he gets to the shining part, he actually has a few other things that he wants to tell us. There are four things here in this passage that will help us to better understand what he's talking about. First of all, he talks about the motivation of the Christian life and community. Why? What drives it? Secondly, he wants to talk about how the, he wants to talk about the power of the Christian life and community. How do we do it? And are we even capable of doing this? Third, the character of the Christian life and community. What's at the core of it all? What, what's, that, what's shining the light going to look like? How do we do this? And then fourthly, the impact of the Christian life and community. So first, let's read our passage for this morning, and then we're going to dive into these four things. Philippians chapter 2, you have your Bibles open in front of you. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 12, and here is what God's Word says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and dispute or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So first of all, what we want to look at here is the motivation of the Christian life and community. Which Paul very clearly addresses here in verse 12 when he says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does this tell us about the motivation of the Christian life and community? Well, there are two things here in this verse, this sentence, that I want to draw your attention to. Two key words in this opening sentence. The first one is the word, therefore. And we know that whenever we see the word, therefore, we need to ask in Scripture, what's it there for, right? Secondly, the second key word is the word, work out. Now, I know that you're sitting here and you're saying, like, okay, Jason, I think that's two words. And in English, it is two words. But in the original language, it's actually one word, and so we're going to go with that. One word, work out. And so let's begin there with the word, therefore. Paul, uh, Paul, his call to obedience is, in this verse is directly related to the previous passages, the previous paragraphs. And what are in those previous paragraphs? 
Well, if you go back uh, a few verses there and you look at what it is that we looked at last week, in in that beautiful song that Paul gives us there, beginning in in verse 6, he actually, he says this, though he, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, work out your salvation. This is so important for us to understand. We we don't obey in order that Jesus will do certain nice things for us. We obey because he has already given his life for us on the cross He he has uh, renewed us and transformed us, and he is in the process of continuing to transform us into his image. In fact, Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because of the fact that Jesus has given himself for us, therefore we are to work out our salvation. And that's then the other word that we want to look at, this word work out, right? This is a nice expression because it clearly means that that when we are saved, there is something that we are to do, that we are to work out. There's something to be worked out. Now, it doesn't say that we are to work up. In a lot of other religions, that's what is being taught, right? Work up your salvation. You know what? You need to do these particular good deeds. You need to be a good person. You need to obey God. And if you do that, you can work up the ladder to receive your salvation. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul is saying here. He says, work out your salvation. That is a big deal, and that is a big difference that people often miss. I remember meeting a young man a number of years ago. When he found out that I was a pastor, he said, you know what, I've been trying to figure out if God is pleased with me or not. And I said to him, okay, well, how are you trying to determine that? How are you trying to figure that out? Well, he had this backpack on, and so he takes his backpack off, and he pulls out this notebook out of his backpack. And on this notebook, he opens it up, and there are these columns on the pages. On the top of each page, it was written across the top, the days of the week. On the left-hand side of each of the columns, there was this list of things that he thought might, God might be pleased with things like kindness and patience and joy and humility and so on. And, and what he had done, and this is no joke, what he had done, he had, uh, for each day of the week, given himself a score out of 10 uh, for each of these virtues. He had pages and pages and pages of this. He said, you know what, this is how I am trying to work out if God really likes me or not. Now, I didn't hardly know whether I should cry or whether I should laugh. Well, I didn't do either one. Instead, I explained to him what the Bible, and particularly what this passage clearly says, clearly teaches, that we do good because God, through Jesus Christ, has already been good for us. 
He's given uh, himself for our sins. He has taken uh, our sins upon himself. He's paid the price. That we don't work up our salvation, but rather we work out our salvation. Which is a really great thing because this kid had given himself a lot of three out of tens. I mean, we work out our salvation instead of trying to work up the ladder in order to receive salvation. This motivation is crucial as we live out the gospel in our everyday lives. Now, I tell you about this kid, but you, you might know as well that there was another guy in the early history, a, a leader in America, a guy by the name of Benjamin Franklin, who had a very similar approach to life. And Benjamin Franklin didn't claim to be a Christian. He, he was a deist. And what that means is that he believed that there was a God, but that, that God had kind of created the universe and then just kind of stepped back and left us all to ourselves. Franklin was uh, very much into ethics. He had read uh, a lot about Eastern philosophies. He had even read the teachings of Jesus. He actually liked a lot of what Jesus said. He, didn't, he just didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Lord. Well, Benjamin Franklin came up with his own list of 13 values that he thought were the best virtues of all. On the list was this, temperance, silence, order, resolution, uh, frugality, uh, industry, Sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, humility. He, he was so into this system that he had come up with this method of accounting for himself. And for years and years and years, he kept track of how well he did in these 13 areas of his life. Now, one of Benjamin Franklin's more recent biographers had said that at the end of his life he was profoundly disappointed because of his lack of moral improvement in his own life. You see, as brilliant as Benjamin Franklin was, he didn't understand the motivation for living an ethical life and he didn't understand where the power comes from either. And that then brings us to the second point here, the power of the Christian life and community. And Paul makes this very clear in our passage here this morning. Uh, again, they're in verses uh, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my, as in my, in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in the house. God is at work in your heart. God is at work in your life. And that's a remarkable thing. Now, don't be confused when he talks about this fear and trembling thing there. But Paul's not saying be, be careful to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God might get angry with you and, and, come, down and uh, come down on you or something like that. No, I don't think that's what he's saying here. Instead, I think what he's saying is work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is in your midst. God is working in your life. I think the point here is that every area of life, is like holy ground that we're on. 
You're not just there uh, trying to live out the Christian life all by yourself. Instead, every step that you take in the Christian life, you are stepping on sacred ground. That God is present with you. That God is present in you, both to will and to work out his good pleasure. You think about that. God working in you. Not just in order that you might act like a Christian but that you might have the desire to act like a Christian. And this isn't the first time that Paul says this here, even in this letter. If you go back one chapter, Philippians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 6, Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Every other religion of the world emphasizes the need to make yourself good on your own. In fact, oftentimes what's being taught in other religions and in this world that we live in today is that the power to cleanse yourself, the power to curb your sinful desires is found within yourself and nowhere else. You know, if that was true, that would be really depressing, right? If that was true, that would be so burdensome. But thank goodness the scriptures tell us that God is at work in us both to will and to work, to act according to his good pleasure. We obey and live out God's truths in our lives, but first he's at work in us. And somehow we hold this mystery together. That we open our hearts to him and he affects the change of our lives. And so if you're here today and you're feeling burdened, you're feeling worn out, you're feeling discouraged in living the Christian life, my advice to you is not to try harder. Uh, Rather, it's simply to ask the gracious Lord to work out his purposes and his pleasures in you. You're not your own. And, And for some of you here today, the key is going to be to relax in his grace instead of trying harder Instead of trying to be good for him. Open your heart to his truth and let him affect the change in you. That's what this glorious passage here in front of us is all about. And so we've talked about the motivation of the Christian life and community. We've seen there the power of the Christian life and community. But what about the character? The character of the Christian life and community. Well, Paul goes on here to explain what he's talking about as, he, as it relates to working out our salvation and obeying. In verses 14 and 15, here's what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I think that very, it's very easy to mistake what Paul's saying here by thinking that the, this grand call to work out our salvation just boils down to don't grumble or dispute. 
As if the entire Christian life just is defined by not grumbling or disputing. But, you know, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. That's not what he, he's getting at. He's not saying don't grumble. What he's saying is do all things without grumbling or disputing. The emphasis here is on the doing all things. And the all things that he's referring to are, are the things that he's been talking about previously here in this letter. He says, do everything that I have been talking about without ruining it by grumbling and disputing. And so the question then is, well, what are the all things that, that, that we're to be doing? Well, it's so obvious if you are reading this uh, text here in order. If, you're, if you start at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2 and you just read it down through in order, it, it becomes very clear here. Because Paul begins the chapter and he's talking about humility. And in verse 2 there, beginning in verse 2, he says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then comes this song, this new song that we talked about and looked at last week about Jesus Christ giving his life on behalf of others. So what, what Paul is saying here is not that the Christian life is to be defined by not grumbling and disputing, but rather he's saying, do everything that I've been talking about, the living in love, the, the living in a humble way, uh, uh, the way that Christ uh, lived without these other things that would kill it, like grumbling and disputing. That grumbling and disputing is like the worst chord progression in this beautiful song of Christ's humility. This idea of grumbling and disputing has a rich biblical history. And surely Paul's readers would have been very aware of instances of grumbling and disputing that are recorded in the Old Testament. And I think back to the Israelites who had been rescued. They'd been rescued out of their slavery in Egypt after they had been there for hundreds of years. God does this amazing work. He frees the Israelites through the Passover. He, he brings them through the Red Sea unharmed. He defeats their enemies. Well, just weeks after the people are rescued out of the, they're, they're out in the desert, they're out in the wilderness, and, and they get a little hungry, and they start grumbling, they start complaining. Here's what we read in Exodus chapter 16. It says, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Why would you do this? I, I can't believe that you would make, put us through all of this, God. Instead of saying, gracious Lord, you've rescued us out of Egypt and, you know, it would be just like you to give us some food as well. 
Would you please provide some food for us? No, instead of saying that, praying that, they grumble. Now, now, even though they were grumbling, even though they were complaining about this, God does send them manna from heaven. And and you think, okay, well, now they've got to be happy, right? They've got to be satisfied. They have food. But they're not. Just a little bit after this, they happen to be thirsty. And instead of thinking, well, you know what? Lord, you have rescued us out of Egypt. You have brought us through the Red Sea. You've defeated our enemies. I mean, you've sent manna from heaven. Surely, God, you would give us some water as well. Let's just ask. I mean, I'm sure you're going to give it to us. No. Instead, they grumble. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 3 says, But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Grumbling. Complaining in the face of God's goodness. I mean, God's goodness is all around you, and yet you're grumbling about the little part that's not quite exactly the way that you want it to be. Now, I think that we need to be careful here because it's so easy to accuse people of grumbling and complaining, particularly in a church setting, when that's not really what they're doing. I mean, they really do care. They really do desire what's best. And the reality is, is that constructive criticism is really, uh, can be a really helpful thing. I would say that a good way to understand the difference between grumbling and constructive criticism would be to go back to something that we talked about a little earlier. Motivation. That, that, that do, do we honestly understand the motivations of our hearts in this? Am I doing this? Am I saying these things to put someone else down, to make them look bad, to make myself look better? Or am I saying things because I'm genuinely concerned about the well-being and the growth of that other person? Is it pride that's motivating me? Or is it humility that's the thing that's motivating me? And then maybe closely related to that, am I speaking out of anger and frustration or out of a genuine love and concern and care for the other people around me? A genuine belief that God is continuing to mold and shape us into his image, into his likeness. That God is not done with me and he certainly isn't done with you yet either. Those are two very different approaches. Now, If we get this right, we are going to stand out in our culture. Because our culture today is so full of grumbling and disputing. Today, there is this sense of hopelessness that people can or even will change. Oftentimes, in our culture today, we really are hoping that everyone else around us is just going to fail. We see this in politics. We see this in the media. We see this in the workplace. We see it everywhere. And what Paul is saying is this. If we can get rid of this attitude of the world and we can live out the Christian character in our lives, we're going to stand out. We are going to uh, be totally different than the rest of the world. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
And if we can do that, it will then lead to the fourth point here, and that is that we will have impact. We'll have impact, the impact of the Christian life and community. When we have our motivation right, when we rely on the power of God, when we understand the character of the Christian life and community, getting rid of grumbling and disputing while living a life of love and humility, then we can have the impact that Paul describes here in these closing verses. Verse 15, he says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Here it is among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may, be poured, uh, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I mean, what a beautiful sentence. He says, if you hold fast to the word of life, if you hold fast to the gospel, the, the beautiful song that Christ gives when he gives himself on the cross for our sins. If you hold fast to a, a love and reflecting him in humility. If you hold fast to the word of life tightly, it's going to shape the way that you live in and the way that you impact the world around you. As you follow Christ in humility. As we get rid of grumbling and disputing, we will shine as lights in this world. And actually, we know that that happened in Philippi in the centuries that followed Paul's letter to them. From the archaeological record at Philippi, we know that from the first century to about the fifth century, that there were four or five churches built there in Philippi. One of those churches was the size of the public marketplace. It was pretty large in, in a town that most likely never had more than 15,000 people in it. This is a very significant development there in Philippi. I mean, what started out in Paul's day as just this small group of people, maybe 50 people from these different homes, maybe they were meeting in Lydia's house. What started out very small began to grow, began to impact thousands of people's lives. The Philippians did indeed shine the light of Christ, and it transformed their city. Don't you long for that to be true of us today? In our homes, in our places of work, in our schools, in the city of Chicago? I mean, don't you long for that to be true here in America? Don't you long for that to be true in this world. I have two daughters who absolutely love princess movies, fairy tales, and superheroes. In fact, the other day they went down to the library and they brought home a few of these movies so that we could watch them together as a family. Well, I was thinking about this the other day and a question that came to my mind was this. What do Cinderella and the, the princess who kissed a frog and the ugly duckling what do they all have in common? Well, all three of those stories, they describe a pilgrimage to beauty. Cinderella starts out as this girl who is forced to do all of these chores. You know, she's dusting the furniture, she's sweeping the floor, she's mopping the floor, she's cleaning the dishes. And her pilgrimage to beauty led her to become a princess. The story of the princess and the frog. The frog starts out as this ugly amphibian, right? This toad. 
But, but the pilgrimage to beauty t- takes place when the princess kisses the frog and he becomes this handsome prince. The ugly duckling starts out as an ugly duckling, but the pilgrimage to beauty eventually made him into this marvelous swan. You know, in the Christian life, we all start out very, very ugly. And when you read through the New Testament, you see this very clearly. We all start out and we are trapped in our sin. We are unable, we are unwilling to respond to God. We are encumbered by our own weaknesses. We are dirtied by the sin that has crept into our lives. We start out ugly, but God comes and he rescues us and he takes us on this pilgrimage to beauty. He wants to change our lives. He wants to use us to shine the light of the gospel into this world that we live. He wants, to sh- wants us to shine the light of the gospel into the lives of the people around us. As we close our time here this morning, I want us to just reflect here on Paul's words to us today. Do you have the motivation right? Thankfulness for the salvation that you have received, that you have been given? Are you relying on the power of God working in you rather than thinking that you are all alone in this? Have you realized that the character of the Christian life is a love for God and a love for other people, a humility that follows in the footsteps of Jesus that that should not be ruined by grumbling or disputing? Because it's only when we have these things in order that we will make the impact that we all so greatly desire to have. That that as we hold the word of the gospel tightly, we find ourselves by the Spirit being transformed by the gospel so that we will shine, so that the world will see the light of Christ through us. Let's pray.